We're in chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page 1002. Page 1002, Hebrews 4. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any, of us, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by some sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And you can be seated as we pray. Father, we've been singing great gospel truths. Now we dig into your word. In all of this, we realize we need your spirit working in our midst. So we pray by your spirit, you would help us understand this living, active word that pierces to the point of joint and marrow. That's our collective prayer right now. We're asking you to speak in our midst. We want to hear your voice in your word. We want to understand what you've said. We want to understand it rightly, not imposing our views on it, but really hearing what you have said. So help us, and Father, help us not to just understand, but I pray that the full impact, full weight of these words would be impressed upon our minds and our souls, our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How much do you value rest? I'm not talking about a Sunday afternoon nap. 
You and I both value that. I'm talking about true rest. The rest of whole relationships. Of security. Of stability. Of the known. Of the comfort of good order. The kind of rest we often call home. We all value that kind of rest. I'd say it's, it's one of the most deep and profound human longings. And for some of us this morning, that longing for that kind of rest is right on the surface. Even hearing it spoken of so briefly brings emotions right to the surface. For others, the longing is a bit more latent. We know it's there. But we need something to trigger it for the longing to really be felt. But nonetheless, it's this kind of longing that is part and parcel of what it means to be human. It's a longing that spans time and culture. In fact, one of the very first great works of literature, Homer's Odyssey, was written some 2,900 years ago, and its theme is this longing for home and the rest of home. And that same longing's Going on today, the hit song, When the Night Feels My Song by Bendwin Soundclash taps into the same longing. And it's this kind of rest, this true and profound kind of rest that God offers to us in Hebrews chapter 4. You probably picked up on that word rest as I read it. Because the word rest is repeated over and over again. In fact, there in verse 9, it doesn't even just say rest, it says a Sabbath rest. So if we long for that rest, there's a good passage to be in. But there's a problem. It's a problem you also probably picked up on as I read. This passage is confusing. That's how we would put it. But when you're a commentator, you don't just come you don't quite come right out and say it's confusing. You describe it as quote one of the more fascinating, enigmatic, and tightly argued sections of Hebrews. You like that? Enigmatic, tightly argued? You've got to love commentators. So if, as I read this passage, you found it enigmatic, you're not alone. So at the outset of the sermon, let me give you three simple observations that I think will help us navigate this tightly argued section of Hebrews. All right? and I, I don't always do this, but I think it's important to get our, our mind around what this passage is doing so it's clear to us. So, observation one. This passage is part of a bigger section that runs from 3.7 to 4.13. And the, the whole section from 3.7 to 4.13 is basically a sermon on Psalm 95. So you see that if you're looking at your Bible, right at 3, 7 to 11, Psalm 95 is quoted. The second half of Psalm 95 is quoted. As we saw last week, it's then applied in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 3. And it, what, what, we're, what we saw last week is Psalm 95 is a warning to us. If Israel of the Exodus, who flew so high, could fall away, 
if they could disbelieve God and, and sin like they did, then we need to be on guard ourselves. And our passage today, this week, is a continuation of that same sermon on Psalm 95. It's part two. Last week's sermon focused on the hardening effects of sin. And this week's sermon, as we already saw, focuses on the idea of rest. So that's the first observation we need to see. It's part of a longer sermon on Psalm 95, warning us not to repeat the error of Israel of the Exodus. Observation two. The point of our passage today can be found in how it begins and how it ends. So look with me at verse 1, for 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to have reached it. And then look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do you see how those two verses are doing the exact same thing? These bookends are doing the same thing. The rest offered them is still available to us. And because of that, verse 1, we need to fear. Because of that, verse 11, we need to strive. The longing for rest that we talked about at the outset of this sermon ought to motivate how we live now. Now, we tend to live in a fear-averse age. So when the Bible tells us to fear something, to fear missing out on rest, and says that should motivate how we live, sounds a bit harsh, a bit out of step with how we do things today. But sometimes fear, like pain, protects us. There's a disease that's commonly called leprosy, and it's characterized by the wasting away of one's outer extremities. But the disease actually doesn't attack your outer extremities. What it attacks is your nerves. It causes them to no longer be able to feel pain. Because you don't feel pain when those outer extremities step on something hot or get cut or something like this, you don't feel it. And so the damage is done over and over again, and you don't even realize your outer extremities are being damaged. So pain, which we also tend to think is a bad thing, actually can prove to be good because pain can protect us from damaging ourselves. And so it is here with fear. If fear protects us from making shipwreck of our faith, If fear safeguards our faith so that we don't dabble in sin, then fear is actually good. It protects us. Fear, like pain, proves to be a good thing. So, just going back then, what's the second observation? The second observation that this passage begins and ends the same way. Our longing for rest should drive how we live now. We should fear missing out on it. We should strive to enter it, right? That helps us know what what we're doing in this passage. Now, the third observation. Uh, 
The third observation is that verses 2 to 10 are proving that the rest of Psalm 95, that the, the rest talked about in Psalm 95, applies to us today. So verses 2 to 10 are, are proving to us that the rest talked about in Psalm 95 applies to us today. Now that's the simple way of putting the observation. But I have to go a little bit further. I have to get into a little bit of detail here, breaking down verses 2 to 10 a little, in a little bit more detail, because I think that's where we can get bogged down and lost. So there's, within 2 through 10, there's even more structure. So look, look with me. Look at verse 2. Okay? For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Okay, so it's, it's making a connection between Israel of the Exodus and us, right? It's saying they received the good news just like we did. It didn't help them because they didn't receive it with faith, but they received that same message. So there's a connection between them and us through the good news we received. Now look at verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, that is rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Do you see that verse 2 and verse 6 are really in parallel with one another? They're restating the same thing. It's make, verse 6 is making the exact same connection between Israel, the Exodus, and us. They, like us, received the good news. But it didn't benefit them. This time it doesn't say because of unbelief. This time it's because of disobedience. But the point's the same. They received the good news like us. And they missed out on the rest. Verse 2 and verse 6 are connecting Psalm 95 to us. Now, what follows verse 2, verses 3 to 5, just kind of glance over it. There the author is proving that the rest of Psalm 95 applies to us by picking up the word my in my rest. What does it mean that God was offering them his rest? So that's 3 to 5, proving Psalm 95 applies by focusing on that word my from Psalm 95. Now, verses 7 through 10, the verses that follow verse 6, are again proving that Psalm 95 applies to us. If you kind of glance over them while I'm saying this, you'll see that. But this time, it's not by picking up on the word my, this time it's by picking up on the word today. Why does David begin this section of Psalm 95 with the word today if it was written about the people of Israel who lived hundreds of years before him? I'm doing all that. I want you to see. Just look with me. So verses 2 and verse 6 are saying the same thing. 
And then what follows verse 2, this part, is proving that Psalm 95 applies to us by focusing on this word, my. And verses 7 through 10 are proving that Psalm 95 applies to us by focusing on the word today. So that just kind of orients you. Now you can kind of look at the passage, and hopefully it's a little bit clearer. Now, I don't normally spend so much time getting into the structure, but I want this enigmatic and tightly argued passage to be clear for us. And I think, I think the passage is actually quite clear once you have a sense of what it's doing. So I hope those three observations helped us. One of my preaching mentors taught me that the congregation expects that your introduction will be about 10% of your total sermon length. So if he's right, you're feeling like this is going to be a 100-minute sermon. In which case, this sermon would fit the theme of Hebrews 4 quite well because you'll be longing for rest after the sermon. Don't worry, I'm not going to use the sermon as an object lesson. That time that we put in at the outset will allow us to move more quickly through the rest of the sermon. So here's my plan with the rest of my time. I'm going to make sure we understand the logic of verses 2 to 5. And then I'm going to make sure we understand the logic of verses 6 to 10. And then I'm just going to make a few comments that kind of brings it all together. That's all we'll do here for the rest of our time. So let's look at the logic of verses 2 to 5. Now, first, I already commented a little bit on verse 2, but I want to make sure we really understand verse 2. Remember, it's the, it's the first verse linking our situation to theirs. Now, I want you to suppose for a minute that your house burned to the ground. That's a grim way of asking you to consider. But consider your house burns to the ground, and a few weeks later, the insurance man comes to your house, hopefully not for the first time, And he hands you a picture of a beautiful new house. And as he hands you the picture, he says, this is yours. Now, you wouldn't think he was talking about the picture. You'd be grateful to have the picture. You'd be excited to see what does it look like. But you'd know as you hold that picture, it was pointing forward to something greater. And that's consistently how God interacted with Israel. Israel of the Exodus, their their house had burned down. They were enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. And then God comes to them and promises them true and lasting rest. But he does so and he hands them a little picture. So he gives them a picture, the tabernacle. He gives them a picture, the priesthood. And in our passage, he gives them the picture of the promised land, Canaan. But each of these pictures is just a picture of the greater reality that ultimately awaits them. And throughout the Bible, those who believed God throughout the Old Testament knew that the ultimate realization of their longings was yet future far more profound than anything they were tasting then and there on that earth. So later on, we'll look into Hebrews 11, and we'll see how they long for something greater, further 
that wasn't fulfilled until Christ came. And that's what defined them by their faith. The heroes of the faith might have received the picture, but they knew what it was that the picture pointed to. So, I want you to bring that idea of the picture and what it points to, to verse 2. It says, For the good news came to us just as to them. Now, at the face value, the good news of Israel and the Exodus was the good news of being able to go into the promised land of Canaan. But we're being told the good news that they received in the form of a picture pointed to something greater. There was a picture of the, it was a picture of the greater good news, the good news that you and I are also offered, the good news of eternal rest with God. So, though the land of Canaan was, was certainly good news for them, and it allow, would allow them a taste of the ultimate rest that they would receive, it was only pointing forward to the greater reality. But here's the problem. It needed to be received with faith. Do you see that? The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That is, they were not united with people whom Hebrews 11 will mention, people like Noah or Abraham or Moses or Samuel or David. Those, those people who heard God's word and believed, they weren't united with those kind of people because they actually, even though they saw all the great things that God had done and they heard him speak on the mountain, they, they passed through the Red Sea, there, that, that reality and that message was not mingled with faith in their hearts. So, not only did they fail to enter the promised land of Canaan, they failed to enter God's eternal and lasting rest. That's what verse 2 is telling us. We both received the same good news, the promise of rest. So we need to be warned by their example. In other words, if you're reading Psalm 95 and saying, yeah, 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 that just applied to Israel back then. We're, we don't, the promised land's not about us anymore. That's irrelevant. I'm in God. I'm in Christ. There's nothing that can touch me. He says, no, no, no. You can't, you can't separate it. The same good news is being offered to both of us. And they missed out because they failed to believe. There are some of you here this morning who have heard the good news preached to you over and over. Maybe you've been coming for a while here to this church or maybe to another church. Maybe your parents or your grandma shared the good news with you. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, maybe you don't. But there's something holding you back from really entrusting yourself to that good news. You're not willing to really let go and believe. To put your hope in it. God is calling you. You, this morning, with a loud, clear voice. The message did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
God wants you to know, to know His rest. God wants you to come to Christ and to embrace the forgiveness that He brings, to cast your burdens on Him, to truly entrust yourself to Him, to stop trying to be the Lord of your own life and to trust the one good King who can actually take care of you, to place your hope in the ultimate promise of rest that He gives us. He wants you to know that freedom. He wants you to know that rest. But you must be united with faith with the many others who have believed or you will miss out on that rest. So we must hear God's word with faith. Now let's look at verses 3 to 5 and just follow the logic here. It's here that we see that the good news offered to them was the good news of rest, and not just the rest of Canaan, but the true rest of God. So verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter, and here's the key word, my rest. The rest he offered them, that he eventually had to cut them off from, wasn't the rest of the promised land. It was his rest. God calls it my rest. One of my first ever jobs as a Bible teacher came when I was in fifth grade. I was asked to prepare some Bible trivia questions for the younger kids in our church for a Bible quiz they had to go through. So one of the questions I wrote out was, how many days did it take God to create the world? And in answer to it, I wrote down seven. And then they ask the question, and some kid gets called upon and says six. It was a little humiliating because the little kid got it right and I got it wrong. You see, according to Genesis 1 through 2, God created the world in six days. And as those six days of creation are described, there's a There's a pattern that gets repeated. So the day always begins with, then God said, let us something or other. Each day ends with a formula, and God saw that it was good. And then there's a concluding refrain, and there was morning, and there was evening, the first day, second day, third day, and so on. But the seventh day is altogether different from the first six days. God doesn't do any work on the seventh day. He ceases from all his labors. And interestingly, the whole pattern that we've been going along in Genesis 1, you're hearing those patterns that I talked about over and over every day, they break. None of those elements are there. There's no refrain. There was morning and there was evening on the seventh day to end the day. It's a very different sort of day. What's God doing in that? Why does he add the seventh day? It only took him six days to create. Why does he have the seventh day? Why does he tell us that's when he enters into a rest? And why does it feel so different from the rest of the days? God's trying to draw our attention to something. As the rest of the scriptures unfold, we realize what he's trying to draw our attention to. And that is we learn that God did this because he wanted to invite us into his rest. 
You see, the seventh day was the pinnacle. It was the final, the culmination of creation. That's why we long for it. That's why we all desire it. Because we were created for it. It's hardwired into creation to long to be able to enter into that true home rest, that true rest that only God can provide with complete security and wholeness and stability and rest. And God doesn't want Israel to miss the point that rest, His rest, was for them. So He commands them in Exodus to set aside the seventh day as a day for them to cease from their labors. Now again, it's like that picture. He's just giving them the picture that points to something. He hands them the Sabbath rest and he says, this is yours to those who are burdened and weighed down, whose house has been burned down, whose world is falling apart around them. This is yours. So they have to have a complete break, a Sabbath. But as they do that, they get a little foretaste of the rest that belongs to God. A rest He's invited them to partake in. Now God didn't want them to miss the point, but they did miss the point. How like us. So they start fixating on all the Sabbath laws. They have to come up, okay, what constitutes work and what constitutes... If you flip a light switch, does that work? Or, you, know, you know, trying to figure out all this stuff, right? They didn't have light switches back then. I know that. But they start adding different rules to define exactly what constituted work and what didn't. So when Jesus comes along, he makes the point again. He says, the Sabbath wasn't made for man, but man, sorry, I said that exactly wrong. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And If you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that he does many of his miracles on the Sabbath day. It's like on the Sabbath day, he gives people a little glimpse of what God's true rest will be like. No more disease, no more heartache, no more pain. And then as he's doing that and people ask questions, he says, look, the Sabbath was created for you. It's a picture pointing at something greater. That rest is for you. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians 2. This is on page 984. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Again, page 984. God doesn't want us to miss the point about what Sabbath is all about. So here it comes again, 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The point is made again. It's not about all the Sabbath laws. How you do Sabbath isn't the point. The point is to see that it ultimately points to Christ and the rest He brings, the rest He will usher in when He returns. The Sabbath was a shadow pointing forward, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Now, at this point, I think I should explain a bit about how we as Christians observe Sabbath. Since we know from the Scriptures that the substance belongs to Christ, that the true rest is ours because of the victory that Christ brought, that the rest that Jesus will bring in when he returns is possible because of his victory on the cross. Because we know that's what the true Sabbath rest is, we make our Sabbath day the day of Christ's resurrection. That is Sunday. The Bible doesn't tell us to do it that way. It says, don't let anyone judge you about your Sabbath. And so Christians said, okay, if we don't need to be judged about it, and we have some freedom here, let's do it on the day he rose. And since our earthly Sabbath is just designed to point us forward to the true rest that we enjoy when Christ returns, we focus less on not doing any work and more on getting a foretaste of eternity. So what do we do? We gather together to study God's Word together. We gather to sing great gospel truths and give each other hope that the things we're singing to one another are true. We gather to take part in communion. As long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You see, it's a taste of what is to come, the great feast that is to come. All of it is just a little foretaste, pointing us forward to the ultimate rest to which we all long. Now, some of you will do other things to rest from your labors on the Lord's Day or maybe another day of the week. Again, as a foretaste of the rest to come. But the point is, however we're doing that, we're cognizant that Christ fulfills it, that it's ultimately pointing forward to our greater rest, And that what we do now should be whetting our appetite for that. So if a Seventh-day Adventist comes up to you and wants to pass judgment on you for how you celebrate the Sabbath, take them to Jesus' words. Take them to Colossians 2. And then take them to Hebrews 4. The true Sabbath rest comes when Jesus returns. And we have freedom now to do it. However... We want so long as we keep focused on the substance to which the shadow points. Whew, that's a lot. Now let's look again at verses 3 to 5. All that from this little my rest. You see, after he says, they shall not enter my rest, he goes back to Genesis, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Genesis. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, Genesis 2, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So he's saying, when when Psalm 95 says they will not enter my rest, he's not talking about the land of Canaan. He's talking about the rest that is uniquely his that he entered into on the seventh day. And again in this passage, verse 5, he said, they shall not enter my rest, the rest spoken of, on the seventh day. So the true rest isn't the promised land. The true rest being spoken of in Psalm 95 is God's seventh day rest. And so the promise of rest for them is the same promise of rest for us. 
It's a rest that we can taste through our union with Christ, through our gathering as a church, through getting a good night of sleep, through the rest of a healthy home. But it's a rest that ultimately comes when Christ returns. When all will be whole. When all will be peace. When all our striving will end. One poet says it this way. No chilling winds, no poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow and pain and death are felt and feared no more. It's true. Christ's victory on the cross shows us it's more than just a fairy tale invented. It's true. His resurrection assures us of it. That is our rest. God offers us that rest. That is good news. And that's verses 3 to 5. The rest offered to them and us is God's seventh day rest. Now let's look briefly at the logic of verses 6 to 10. Now verse 6, as we saw at the beginning, repeats the message of verse 2, so I'm not going to get into that. But verses 7 to 10 then pick up on the fact that David used the word today in Psalm 95. Verse 7 Appoints he, or again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So this is interesting. You see, David, when he was writing Psalm 95, was in the promised land. In fact, Josh was the one who leads them over Jordan into Canaan, but they don't wipe everybody out, and so there's all sorts of fighting that goes on. It's a mess until David comes along, and then the promised land is fully theirs. So finally, the fulfillment of the promised land is theirs, and David says, we're at risk just like they were. He says, today... We who are in this promised land need to heed the warning about not missing out on rest. Well, 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 D- David, we're here. We're in Canaan. How can you be saying we need? We finally got here, and now you're saying we might miss out on it because we might harden our hearts like them? And what, what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, look, if David, while he's sitting in that promised land that Joshua brought them into, if David is saying today for them that they need to take care of their own hearts so they don't miss out on the promised rest, then the promised rest can't be the land. It has to be something bigger. That is the seventh day rest that God entered into. Right? So look with me, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, he wouldn't have inspired David to put the word today there. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever's entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
So while they hold the picture in their hand, David, the people David wrote to are holding the picture in their hand. Maybe they even have it framed and hung on their wall. David's saying, today, don't repeat the error of them because you might miss out on the actual house. Sabbath rest is yet future. It is not fulfilled in the promised land. It is secured for us in Christ. And is not fully ours until he returns. Bob Dylan crooned, there will be no peace and the wars won't cease until he returns. So that's the logic of verses 3 to 5. David's use of the word today alerts us to the fact that the rest they experienced was only a picture of the greater rest of God. Now what's the upshot of all this? Why why did the author take so much time to study Psalm 95 in such detail, focusing on the word my and the word today? Let's try and bring it all together. The author of Hebrews knows to whom he's writing. They were a weary, ragged little church. Their faith had grown threadbare. And he tells them, God's God's rest, the rest that uniquely belongs to him, the wholeness, the sense of belonging, the forgiveness, the end of conflict, the end of disease, the end of death, this rest is available to you. It's available to us. But he warns them, we can't take it for granted. If you don't receive the message with faith, if you don't sober up and be wary of slipping away, if you continue on in knowing disobedience and open sin, all of it could be lost. It happened to Israel and it could happen to us. And don't try to tell me that Israel's situation is different. Psalm 95 makes perfectly clear, he argues, that the rest God offered them was his rest, and it's the same rest offered to us in Christ. And so the warning of Psalm 95 against allowing sin and unbelief to harden our hearts stands today. It's a pointed message. Penetrating sobering. I want everyone here, everyone, to be able to enjoy God's rest. Yeah, I want us to be able to enjoy the little foretaste of it now through our union with Christ. But more importantly, I want everyone here to be able to enjoy it eternally. Think of it. The truest home. A place of true and complete rest. Complete ease. No angst. No striving. No strife. No quarrels. No cancer. No mourning. No heartache. I don't want to miss that rest. And I don't want anyone here to miss that rest. And neither does God. 
Which is why he gave us Psalm 95. That's why he gives us Hebrews 3, 7 to 4, 11. And it's why he has you in this church this morning. God's giving us the pain receptors in our nerves so that we don't destroy our flesh by touching hot things. God's giving us the fear of missing out on that rest so that we don't destroy our souls by dallying in unbelief and sin. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's the exposition of Psalm 95 that the author of Hebrews through the Holy Spirit gives us. And take a deep breath. Past two weeks have been quite a journey. If you were here last week and this week, our hearts have been filleted by God's Word. Psalm 95, for me, and hearing some of your comments for you, has cut us to the deepest parts. I mean, our innermost thoughts have been laid bare by God. The cuts have been deep. But as I hear you and I sense myself, the cuts have been deep, but the cuts have been good. These sobering healing cuts didn't come by glibly skimming over Psalm 95 without thinking about it. We had to study it. We had to think about words like today and my and hardening hearts. But as we studied it, its living power could not be missed by us. That's just what God's Word does. That's not something unique to Psalm 95. You dig deep into God's Word, and it digs deep into you. And that's what the author of Hebrews knows all along. Look at verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, and all are naked, exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Repeatedly then, not just with Psalm 95, but repeatedly, over and over again, the method that the author of Hebrews uses to work in our hearts is to go to Scripture and not just glibly pass over it, to dig deep into it because he's convinced that it's the Scriptures that have the power. Now, this sermon today, maybe more than many that you'll listen to, you had to work hard. And I just want to say, in the course of our study in Hebrews, we're going to have to do some hard work, some heavy lifting. It demands that we follow the complex logic of different passages and of biblical themes. But as we dig deep, God's Word will dig deep into us. And like the patient... Under the surgeon's knife, we will be healed 